will now be doing an altar call upon Sean's sermon that he has preached. I turned around and looked at Dan and I said, do I even, do I even need to preach this morning? Is that, it's going to make what I'm going to preach about seem sort of small, but I'm going to do it anyways. There's a quote that goes like this. Let us be as watchful after the victory as before the battle. Those words were spoken by a Scottish preacher and they give us insight and they also give us a warning that we should never become too confident and we should never lack vigilance even after a great victory. Because as we know, the next great battle is always right around the corner. Such was the case in the most famous battle of the Revolutionary War. What was that famous battle, anybody? The battle what? Do what? No. Started it all. The battle of what? Bunker Hill. The battle at Bunker Hill, which actually, interesting enough, I'm just kind of a history buff, and so I, get, I like nerd out on these things. I spent like an entire like half an hour reading an article about the Battle of Bunker Hill uh, this week. And I was like, this really has nothing to do with my sermon except for the introduction. But the Battle of Bunker Hill was actually not fought at Bunker Hill. It was actually fought at a place called Breed's Hill. For some unknown reason, the uh, rebels, the Americans, marched right past Bunker Hill and went to Breed's Hill. I think it was because they, in their American pride, said, we're going to show you British something. Right in the face of the British on Breed's Hill was a shorter hill. But they called it the Battle of Bunker Hill, and nevertheless, a battle did ensue on the evening of June 16, 1775. As tensions rose between the colonists in Boston and the British Army for reasons that are still somewhat unclear, I mean, we always think of the Revolutionary War. Well, it's obvious why there was a Revolutionary War. We wanted to get out from under the thumb of those Brits. Really, honestly, it just kind of started in the most innocent way here at Bunker Hill. The Americans took their stand at Breed's Hill, and they dug in. And by the next morning, before the rebel force of Americans, the colonists had time to reinforce and to get fully entrenched. The British forces stormed Breed's Hill, or Bunker Hill, as we know it. And although the small and disorganized band of fighters on top of the hill seemed to be no match for the superior and well-trained British army, the rugged terrain proved to be the equalizer in everything. You see... It was a hill for a reason. It was pretty steep, and not only was it steep, there was, there was unmown hay all the way up the hill. And the unmown hay obscured rocks and holes and other hazards as the British army tried to get up that hill. Fences and stone walls also slowed the British, and the Americans, meanwhile, were ordered to hold their fire until the, ac- the attackers were 50 yards or less away. In fact, what is the famous line that we usually hear, do not fire until what? You see the whites in their eyes. That was actually never said, but well, that's all right. You know, that's all, in our American minds, we'll go ahead, because it sounds like really epic, right? Don't fire until you see the whites in their eyes. No, it, it didn't happen, guys. When the Americans did finally fire, they dropped the tightly packed Brits in clumps. That's how they marched in formation, is they were this tight little group, and they just picked them off poof, in clumps. The Brits fell. Being handily beaten in this initial attack, the Redcoats were forced to Retreat. Score one for the ragtag band of troublemakers. But not to be made the fool, the well-organized British troops reorganized and made another attempt at snuffing out this rebellion. However, they experienced very similar results to the first time they tried to attack the hill. 2-0, good guys. 
But what looked like certain and improbable victory for the colonists, for America, soon came to a crashing end. The Americans running low on ammunition and gunpowder and the Brits with a newly devised plan put an end to any ideas that the colonists would win. And in just two hours of fighting, 1,000 plus British troops, that was almost half of what had stormed the hill, were either dead or they were badly wounded. American losses were less, but they were still significant at more than 400 for the very small militia. The first battle had just happened, and it actually proved to be the bloodiest battle of the entire Revolutionary War. And though the British had achieved their goal, they had captured the hill, they had Bunker Hill, they won it, the battle was actually a losing battle in every sense of the imagination. In fact, as British Commander General George Howe put it, the success is too dearly bought. In fact, there's a term that's used in in war and battle when you win a battle or you win a victory, but it's not really a victory at all. It's called a Pyrrhic victory. All right? It's named after a guy way back in like ancient Greece. And a Pyrrhic victory is a victory that inflicts such devastating tolls on the victor that it, they actually have experienced defeat. The British loss had absolutely wiped out any real sense of achievement. They had lost so many men in this one little battle on this one little hill in Boston. And in this morning's text, we'll be continuing on in Judges. Judges chapter 9 is where we'll be today. So if you want to turn there, as I continue to set this up. In this morning's text, a Pyrrhic victory is certainly in play. And it gives full weight to the caution that I gave at the beginning of this morning's sermon. And again, it goes like this. Let us be as watchful after the victory as before the battle. There is a verse that consistently comes up. Whenever I'm preaching or when I'm doing devotions or whatever, I'm just thinking. And it comes out of 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and it's verse 12. And it reminds me a lot about what I've been talking about to this point. It simply says this. If you think that you are standing strong, if you think that you have won the battle, be careful not to fall. Because again, as I said at the very beginning, the next battle is right around the corner. Recapping last week's events in the book of Judges, we left with our hero, our warrior Gideon, about to go into battle against the evil in the garden raiding Midianites. And in the most improbable turn of events in chapter 7 of Judges, Gideon not only triumphs over the Midianites, but he does so with only 300 warriors. Now, most of us would know this, but it's still pretty shocking to me. Gideon goes into battle with 300 guys, 300 foot soldiers. And here's the deal. They don't even have weapons to speak of. They have clay jars and they have their voices to yell with. And God says, go into battle and you will not fight just some sort of a large army. You will fight an army that is probably at that, it was probably about 125 to 135,000 Midianites. With 300 guys, with just screaming and with just clay jars. It it finally seems in Judges chapter 7 that Gideon is trusting in God and he's replacing his long held fears. Remember, we talked last time that Gideon started his life and he was what? He was a coward, he was a scaredy pants. It finally looks like he's replacing those fears with faith, but not so fast, my friends. 
Chapter 8 of Judges gives us a whole new perspective on Gideon, and it reveals what will be a source of many problems in our story for this morning when we'll talk in Judges chapter 9. So what we need to do is we need to actually understand a little bit about chapter 8 and the end of Gideon's life and the end of Gideon's rule to understand what happens in chapter 9 of Judges. I want to look at a changed Gideon, a change that starts with one line and one moment towards the end of chapter 8. It happens in verse 22. Gideon has won against the Midianites. He has chased kings across the Jordan. He has chased the enemy across the Jordan. He has killed a couple of kings, and now he's kind of going to kill a couple more kings. I told you this is a very graphic book. It's not warm and fuzzy. Gideon has done some wonderful things. I mean, like, he is a warrior. And it says in verse 22, Then the Israelites said to Gideon, Be our ruler. And do you catch the logic that they use in that verse for why they want him to be their ruler? Because what? You, Gideon, have rescued us from Midian. There's only really one problem with that kind of logic. Gideon was in no way responsible for the rescue, and he cannot rightly take the place of a king. I mean, sure, yes, he had to go out and he had to lead the guys in battle, but we know who the one is that stands behind Gideon. We know who the one is that wins the battle for Israel. And really, to Gideon's credit, he recognizes this. He says to them in their proposal to him, be our ruler, he says, I will not rule over you. Not only will I not rule over you, my son will not rule over you. And what does he say very importantly there in verse 23? The who? The Lord will rule over you. And though Gideon doesn't make it very apparent, we know, like I said, that God is the one who stands behind and has rescued Israel. Here's the big problem with this, and you're thinking to yourself, what's so bad? I mean, like, this guy has won a victory. I mean, he is kind of dispatched of the enemy. I mean, he kind of sort of gives credit to God, but, but God. but Gideon does not correct the Israelites' mistake. The huge mistake in all of this is that they did not attribute the rescue of Israel to God. And Gideon does nothing to correct that mistake. But, but still, like we look at it and it's like, I don't know. I mean, like, okay, that's a little itty-bitty kind of thing there. Everything, Ryan, seems to really be on track. Gideon's won a great battle. He's brought deliverance to Israel. But as we talked about the front this morning, Gideon is about ready to lose a bigger victory, a more important victory in just a span of a few verses. In fact, by not warning the Israelites of their poor choice and asking for a king. Do you remember what God, I mean, God says this way back in the Old Testament. He says, you do not need a king because guess what? I am your king. And what does Israel do time and time again? We want a king. And, and here, here's the kicker of it all. And they add on to it. We want a king just like everybody else around us has a king. We want to be like everybody else. And Gideon doesn't correct this mistake. Gideon doesn't say, time out, Israel. Whoa, bad choice. You need to stop right there. He doesn't just not stop them in their poor choice. He actually misleads them into their false worship. And what's really ironic about the whole situation is that while Gideon is really misinformed and he really is misguided, it was actually a Midianite way back in chapter 7, Verse 14, who saw things as they were. Back in 7.14, a Midianite says, God has given Gideon, son of Joash, the Israelite, victory over Midian and all its allies. A Midianite says that. It's not an Israelite. It's not Gideon. It's nobody else. It's a Midianite who says, God is about ready to kick our tail. 
It's happening. We know it to be the case. But what's even more ironic than that statement, and Gideon not getting that, is that there is no mistake that from the time that Gideon crosses over the Jordan to chase the enemy, he displays more and more kingly attributes about himself. He, he has more self-grandeur about himself than he ever has. I mean, for, for good and right purposes, right? I mean, he's Gideon. He's gone out and defeated an army of over 100,000 people with just 300 warriors. And Gideon starts to think about himself, I'm Gideon. I mean, like, you guys, like, he doesn't do it so obviously. He does it very subtly, but you guys notice me. You guys notice what I have done for you, Israel. And what he begins to do is he says, I'm not getting respect. I'm not getting honor because of what I have done for you. And so I'm going to start to take some things for myself. The first sign of his delusion, of his kingly delusion that he has, comes in verse 24 of Judges chapter 8. And he says this. They said, be our ruler. He says, I'm not going to rule over you. My son's not going to rule over you. God will rule over you. But this is so funny. Right after he says it, the Lord will rule over you. However, he says, I do have one request. Each of you give me an earring from the plunder you collected from your fallen enemies. What, what is Gideon doing here? He is imposing a what? A tax. What's that sound like to you? A king. You see, Gideon says, well, if you're not going to give me mine, I'm going to go and I'm going to get mine. I'm going to impose a tax. That sounds pretty kingly to me. The greatest offense, actually, though, and a clear sign that Gideon thinks so highly of himself comes in verse 27. I mentioned it last week at the end of everything as we were getting ready to leave. Verse 27, it says this. Gideon made a sacred ephod from the gold, from the tax that he had just levied, and he put it in Ophrah, his hometown. You see, by taking the gold from the tax and turning it into an ephod, which I should probably step back for just a minute, an ephod was a vest that the high priest wore back in the Old Testament days when they would go into the tabernacle and they would minister, they would have this ephod on. It was part of their priestly duty. So do you see again what Gideon is kind of doing? Like, notice me. Worship me. He was essentially creating an object of worship that focused the light squarely on him. It's obvious that Gideon fully intends the ephod to enhance his value and to give importance and glory to his family. You remember what Gideon says at the very beginning, right? Like, Lord, real? I mean, think about this for just a moment. Stop. Go back to the very beginning of the story. Where do we see Gideon at the beginning of the story? In a wine press, and he's going, what? God comes to him and says, mighty warrior. And Gideon says, who are you talking about? I'm not a mighty warrior. I'm the weakest in my family. My family's the weakest in my clan. I'm a nothing. And we come to this point here and we see a totally different Gideon. He wants to be important. He wants glory to go to him and to his family. And when he does this, he leads not only to his family into an idolatrous lifestyle, he leads all of Israel into an idolatrous lifestyle. The second part of verse 27 says he sets his sacred ephod up. Notice me, notice me, give praise to me. But soon all the Israelites prostituted themselves by worshiping it, and it became a trap, a trap for Gideon and for his family and for all of Israel. Guys, we don't want to miss this here. This happens. All of what happens and what I just read happens in the very place that Gideon began his career as a judge. 
You remember how he began his career in his hometown, right? He tore down the altar to Baal. He tore down the Asherah pole that was next to it. And it's not really that Gideon wants to intentionally still worship from God, but he effectively does that when he seeks to share the spotlight with God. He doesn't exactly all kick God all the way out of the picture. He just says, like, God, can I share some of the glory because I just did this. Again, do you remember what, what God said to Gideon before he went into battle? I'm going to thin out your herd so that you don't boast that it was your strength that did this. Where is Gideon right now? I did this. Give me honor. Give me respect. It sounds like he has a whole lot of what? Pride. I heard an illustration this week that I thought was really great about this idea of not necessarily maybe kicking God all the way out of the picture, but, but sharing the spotlight with with the bridegroom. I have a wedding coming up in a few weeks, and, and, and this made me laugh. The, the, the illustration sort of went this way. Can you imagine if, if you were here for a wedding this morning, and, and the bride and the groom were up here, and then the best man was standing over here? What's the best man supposed to do? Like, what's his one job to do at a wedding? Do what? Bring the ring. But even before that, more importantly, he is to get the groom to the wedding. I mean, like, if he can do that, guess what? He just succeeded as the best man. Could you imagine if the doors flung open the back and the bride was back there and she was so beautiful coming in and the entire time that the groom was up here looking at the bride, the best man was behind the groom and he was just kissing at her and just making goo-goo eyes at her and just all the attention was actually going to the best man and none of it was going to the bride and to the groom. Do you see that we sometimes do the very same things in our life. Like we don't, we, we won't be so prideful to say, God, let me take the attention completely off of you, but we'll just stand behind Jesus and we'll just make goo-goo eyes at everybody and say, look at me and how important I am. I mean, did you just see me up here playing this guitar? Did you just see me just with my wonderful angelic voice just ringing out? Did you, we will do that all day long because we are so prideful. Now, some of us hide it better than others, but within each of us, I think there is a streak of pride. There's something off about our worship. And, and in fact, the way that we worship and the focus of our worship actually paves the way for who and what those around us worship. It's very important. Don't miss that. Guys, things have become worse in the story and in Gideon's life as the story progresses. What had started as a man with really great potential. He had all the potential in the world. Why in the, else in the world would God come to him and say, Mighty warrior, I am with you. He saw something in Gideon. We have come from that moment, a man with great potential, and it's turned to into a mess. In the end, Gideon has gone and he has turned sour. And in fact, with Gideon, for the first time in Judges, and we've... Again, I talked to last week, God has used some pretty shady characters already in this book. But for the very first time in Judges, the people fall away while the judge is still living, not after he passes away. Gideon has set up his own throne even though he initially refuses it. He's levied a tax, he set up a monument to himself, and if that doesn't convince you that this guy wants to be king, he wants to be ruler, verse 30 of chapter 8 seals the deal says that Gideon had 70 sons, which is a lot of kids, guys. I don't, woof. You don't want that many kids. 
He had 70 sons born to him, for he had many wives. What does that sound like to you? Who else has many wives but a king? And in fact, it introduces us to the man we're going to talk about this morning in verse 30. He says he had 70 sons, he had many wives. He also had a concubine in Shechem who gave birth to a son whom he named Abimelech. So not only does he have 70 sons from a lot of wives, he also has this hush-hush lady over here in Shechem that gave him the son Abimelech. Again, what is the source for all of Gideon and all of Israel's sin? The big P, pride. Gideon has set up his own throne, but the son who will come after him is even worse than he could have imagined. Again, we're introduced to that individual in verse 30. The son of Gideon's concubine is Abimelech, which is a mouthful, I understand, but that's the guy we're going to talk about this morning. And appropriately, listen, I, again, I love name meetings, and Old Testament's full of name meeting. Do you know what Abimelech's actual name means? My father is a king. Like, how audacious is that? Don't tell me that Gideon didn't desire worship because of his unchecked pride and his ego. He names his son, my father is a king. Gideon took what did not belong to him. He took God's glory away from him. Guys, to glorify God is the whole point we could sit here all morning long, and I could ask you for the rest of the time we have left, what do you think is the, the main goal, the main point of being a follower of God and Jesus Christ? We, we, could, we could have all kinds of answers. I mean, we probably put hundreds of answers up here. Guys, the whole point of mankind's existence is to give glory to God. Theologian and pastor John Piper actually says it the best. It's one of my favorite quotes. The chief end of man is to glorify God by enjoying him forever. And what's really interesting about Abimelech's reign is that it's actually a direct reflection of Gideon's character and his leadership. In fact, Judges 9 is really just an outgrowth and a result of Gideon's poor decisions and sin in Judges 6, 7, and 8. Like, Judges chapter 9 is actually the sequel to Gideon and what happens. Any positive work that comes from the rule of Gideon is undone by the anti-judge Abimelech. And you guys think that you've seen some bad stuff to this point? You think you've seen some really ugly characters to this point? You ain't seen nothing yet until this guy today. The undoing of Gideon's ministry in his life, his character and leadership begins very quickly in the first six verses of Judges chapter 9. It says, one day Gideon's son Abimelech went to Shechem to visit his uncles, his mother's brothers. And he said to them and to the rest of his mother's family, ask the leading citizens of Shechem whether they want to be ruled by all 70 of Gideon's sons or by one man. And remember that I am your own flesh and blood. I mean, do you see his logic and how he's starting to weasel his way into here? Like, guys, really, I mean, is it ever good that many people try to rule or is it better if one person tries to rule? Like, if maybe if you're not convinced, hold on. Remember that these guys here, these 70 sons, aren't even related to you. Guess who's related to you? This guy. So, so Abimelech's uncles, duh, 
gave, him, gave, gave this message to all the citizens of Shechem on his behalf. And after listening to his proposal, I mean, doesn't this sound like a wonderful proposal to you? I mean, just well thought out. It says the people of Shechem decided in favor of Abimelech because he was their relative. Can we just think about that for a moment? Are there times in your life where it probably would not be good logic for you to say, you know what, I think we need to do this because I'm related to this person. There are some really bad times of that to not do that. Because he was their relative. They gave him. In fact, not only did they just say, hey, we think you're right, Abimelech. They gave him 70 silver coins from the temple of Baal Barith, which was their false god that they had there. Which he used, I love this phrase here, he used it to hire some reckless troublemakers. Like, we know this isn't going anywhere good. Like, he willingly and knowingly goes out and hires these guys that are reckless troublemakers who agree to follow him. And this isn't bad enough, the last two verses of this first part are not great. He went to his father's home at Ophrah, and there on one stone... He killed all 70 of his half-brothers, the sons of Gideon. But the youngest brother, Jotham, escaped and hid. This last verse, this sixth verse, really always kind of confuses me. Everything that these people have already seen, and he's gone and he's killed 69 of his half-brothers, it says in verse 6, Then all the leading citizens of Shechem and Beth Melo called a meeting under the oak beside the pillar at Shechem and made Abimelech their king. Well, duh, naturally, right? You'd want a murderer as your king, wouldn't you? You'd want this shady guy. You'd want this devious guy. you want this cunning guy to be your king, right? Nobody steps in. Nobody says anything. And they say, yep, sounds good to me. You're king. The scene where most of the action of chapter 9 takes place is actually very important. We need to know what happened there. Shechem was the spiritual and national center of all of Israel. It was a significant location in all of Israel's history. It was, the, it was the first place that God appeared to Abraham when he came into the land of Canaan. It was the first place where an altar was set up to God. It was where Jacob called his entire family back to God. It was the first place Israel, Israel gathered to worship when they came and they crossed into the promised land under Joshua. It was the very place that Joshua gave his final speech and reaffirmed Israel's obedience to the Lord. Guys, to say Shechem was somewhat of a priority to Israel would be a vast and a huge understatement. Historically, Shechem was the spiritual center. It was the thermometer for all of Israel. The state of Shechem indicated the overall state of Israel. And let's just say the state ain't good of Israel. Every other leader that we've talked about to this point in Judges is called directly by God. Do you notice how Abimelech comes into power? He grasps it for himself. He seizes it for himself. Abimelech, guys, is the embodiment of pride, and he really is pride unchecked, pride on the loose. This is what happens. If you want to say, you know what, is pride really all that bad? Read chapter 9 of Judges. Pride is really that bad. But again, guys, Abimelech's pride is not really that surprising to us because it's only really rooted in Papa's pride. It's rooted in Gideon's pride from the previous three chapters. And we get a sense in these opening verses, verses 1 through 6, that Abimelech is not happy with his position as an outsider. Remember, he's an illegitimate son of a concubine in Shechem. He's not part of Gideon's actual family with the 69, 70 other brothers. 
And so for the rest of chapter 9, he is dominated by a ruthless craving to push his way into the inside, to make a name for himself, for him to tell everybody, look at me. I am in charge now. I am the ruler. I am the king. And the way he accomplishes and satisfies that craving is inconceivable. I don't care how many times you would read this story about what he does to his brothers. It is just inconceivable. One victim after another, after another, after another is placed on the very same stone. Person after person after person is dispatched with unspeakable horror again and again and again until all the challengers have been eliminated in Abimelech's life. Just reading the account is sickening and makes you feel dirty. But perhaps more sickening is that no one does anything about it. Could you imagine that watching one person killed, two people, three, ten, twenty, thirty, forty, sixty-nine, and nobody says, um, do we, do we think this is a good idea? Does, does this sound like a thing that we do to each other? Nobody says a word. And worse yet, like I said in verse six, they make this guy a king without even a second thought in their minds. But almost as quickly as Abimelech starts to rise, his star fades just as fast. We're going to skip ahead in the story. There's a little parable that happens here from Jotham, the youngest son. We're going to skip over that and we're going to go to verse 22. It says, after Abimelech had ruled over Israel for how long? Three measly years. He doesn't even get a whole lot of time to try to rule. In three years, it says... The next part is really important. It's, in fact, the most important part of the story. I want to read verses 23 and 24. After three years, God sent a spirit. I'm going to read that again. God sent a spirit that stirred up trouble between Abimelech and the leading citizens of Shechem, and they revolted. God was punishing Abimelech for murdering Gideon's 70 sons and the citizens of Shechem for supporting him in this treachery of murdering his brothers. Guys, this is the key to Judges chapter 9. This is not just the key to Judges chapter 9. It's really the key to so much of Scripture. And the idea goes something like this. And we need to lock it in this morning. God's judgment is seemingly slow, but it is always sure. He will always judge evil. I love the way that poet Henry Wadsworth Longfellow said it. He said it this way. Though the mills of God grind slowly, yet they grind exceedingly small. Nothing at all gets missed by God. No wrong will go unpunished. God sees it all. And you would read this story and you would think to yourself, all we need actually all we really need to read is verse five of Judges nine. I like, that's it. Killed 69 guys on the same stone. And God seems pretty absent in this story. He seems pretty absent in the life of this godless man, Abimelech, in his reign. But the man who seems so powerful will in the end be swept away by God. And not just over time. He will be swept away quickly. He gets three years. God does not put up with Abimelech. He does not put up with the people of Shechem for long. That action, guys, is brought about by the personal involvement of the Lord. Again, listen to the words there in verse 23. God sent. It also comes in the form of 
The only person who escapes Abimelech's massacre, Jotham, the youngest son of Gideon. And for starters, again, here's a name-meaning thing. His name speaks to the character of God himself. Jotham's name means God is perfect. God is blameless. God is honest. God acts with integrity. And that parable that I mentioned here at the beginning of chapter 9, we're not going to read all the way through it. The parable that he speaks and his message that he has to Israel basically is this. You, Israel, you, Abimelech, lack integrity. You, Israel and Abimelech, you lack honesty, integrity. You have nothing in you but pride. But on the flip side, just in his name, he's saying God is constantly faithful. God is constantly honest. God is one who is full of integrity. The parable he talks about is actually very interesting. Just to boil it down, he talks about four, the forest trying to make four trees king. It says first they come and they try to make the olive tree king. And the olive tree says, I'm much too important. I'm making olive oil. I can't come and be your king. And so they, next they go to a fig tree. And the fig tree says, I'm doing figgy things. Like, I don't know what figs do other than make fig newtons, but I'm doing figgy things. I don't have time for you. Go pick somebody else. And so finally they go to a grapevine, which isn't even a tree. And they say to the grapevine, grapevine, you be our king, be our ruler. And this grapevine says, I am making wine that makes people happy and cheerful. I can't possibly come and be your king. And so it says they finally go to a thorn bush. I mean, which is really laughable. Do you, do you know how much shade a thorn bush can provide? Zilch. You know what use a thorn bush has? Zilch. Nothing. Do you know what two things that a thorn bush is good for? Being used as fuel in fire and to catch everything else on fire around it. That's all a thorn bush could do. The thorn bush is Abimelech. He is the thorn bush king. The gist of Jotham's message is this very simply let each of you destroy the other. Jotham, you destroy Shechem, and Shechem, you destroy Abimelech. And very much the same way as Abimelech came onto the scene, we get another man that shows up in verse 26. His name is Gaal. I'm going to read verses 26 through 29. It says, One day Gaal, son of Abed, moved to Shechem with his brothers and gained the confidence of the leading citizens of Shechem. During the annual harvest festival of Shechem, held in the temple of the local god, the wine flowed freely and everyone began cursing Abimelech. Guys, when the wine starts to flow freely, probably not much great is going to happen. Who is Abimelech? Gaal shouted. He's not even a true son of Shechem. So why should we be his servants? He's merely the son of Gideon. And this Zebel, who was the deputy over Shechem... He says, serve the true sons of Hamor, the founder of Shechem. Why should we serve Abimelech? If I were in charge here, I would get rid of Abimelech. I would say to him, get some soldiers and come out and fight, buddy. He didn't say that last part. I just added that in, actually. It's not there. Doesn't that sound a whole lot like what Abimelech does when he comes onto the scene? Guys, it's me. It's Abimelech. I'm your flesh and blood. Gaal comes and he says, guys, wait a minute. He's not even a true son of the person who founded this city. I am one of those true sons. You need to follow me. And in time, Abimelech and his men fight Gaal, and they drive he and his supporters from Shechem. And again, it looks like Abimelech has triumphed. But in all actuality, he's just continuing his 
downfall. To speed up the story and to fill in a whole bunch of blanks here, he eventually captures Shechem, he kills its people, he levels the city, and he scatters salt on it, which is really weird. If you were reading that, you're like, okay, I get it, you destroyed the city and you killed the people, but why did you have to use the salt? I don't get it. Salt back in those days was very representative, it was very symbolic. That when you put salt on, like if, if somebody would go into a city and they would attack it and they would destroy that entire city and they would level it and they put salt on it, it was their way of saying, may this city never be inhabited or even thought of again. I have wiped Shechem from existence. That's what Abimelech does. <laughs> Guys, in the end, the spiritual center of Israel becomes a barren wasteland that is erased from existence. But guys, Abimelech is not finished. As you can imagine, this is a guy who is ruthless. He is so caught up in himself that he can't just stop there. Verses 46 through 49, it says, When the leading citizens who lived in the tower of Shechem heard what had happened, they ran and they hid in the temple of Baal Bareth, their God, their local God. It, you know, God, Yahweh, can't save us, but maybe our local God can. Someone reported to Abimelech that the citizens had gathered in the temple, so he led the forces to a mountain. And he took an axe and he chopped down some branches from a tree, and then he put them on his shoulder and he said, Quick, do as I have done. He told his men. So each of them cut down some branches following Abimelech's example. They piled the branches against the walls of the temple. And this is like it could only come from like a movie. This is stuff you only see in movies. They set them on fire. And so all the people who lived in the Tower of Shechem, all the people who had gone to their local God's temple, died. About a thousand men and women died. And we think to ourselves, can there be any end to this guy's evil? You've murdered 69 of your half-brothers. You've murdered a thousand people for no good reason just because you have so much pride. It doesn't seem like his evil will ever end. In fact, after he's finished in Shechem, he goes to a city named Thebes, who must have obviously been allies to Shechem, and must have obviously revolted against Abimelech. And his rampage starts in much the same way. Verse 50, it says, then Abimelech attacked the town of Thebes and captured it. But there was a strong tower. This sounds exactly like what we just read. There's a strong tower inside the town, and all the men and women, the entire population, fled to it. They barricaded themselves in, and they climbed up to the roof of the tower. Not very smart, guys. Abimelech followed them and he attacked to attack the tower. And you're thinking to yourself, this is going to happen again. He's going to put the branches up against. He's going to set it on fire. He's going to have a whole tower get on fire. He's going to kill more people. But the plot changes on a dime. Second part of verse 52 through 55 says this. As he prepared to set fire to the entrance, a what? A woman. This is the second time in Judges this has happened, guys. Listen to what she does. It says, a woman on the roof dropped a millstone that landed on Abimelech's head and crushed his skull. I mean, that's a pretty, that's a pretty great aim. I don't know. I don't know what the size of this millstone would have been. It could have been very, varying sizes depending on how it was used to grind the grain. But I have every belief that this woman took a pretty good-sized rock and she plunked it on, the, on, the, on well, that's a mouthful, Abimelech's head. Plunked it on Abimelech's head. There you go. That's what I was going to say. Guys, the, the key to it all, though, is found in the closing verses of Judges. Again, as we read a little bit ago in verses 23 and 24. Here's how the whole story ends. Actually, I want to read one more verse. It says that she drops this stone on his head, crushes his skull. He quickly said to his young armor bearer, draw your sword, kill me. Don't let it be said that a woman killed me. Which is really funny because actually in the very next book, in, in the Samuel accounts, it talks about this woman killing Abimelech. 
So, so the young man ran him through with a sword and he died. And this is so comical to me. Verse 55, when Abimelech's man saw that he was dead, they disbanded and they returned to their homes. Imagine this scenario. <clears throat> Woman throws a rock on this guy's head, kills him. He's ran through with a sword by his armor bearer and he dies. And all these people that were like, we are going to get all these people, just all of a sudden, like, eh, we're going home, see you. You're like, can you think about that for just a minute? how little hold this guy had on everybody, although he thought that he was like the most powerful person ever. Verses 56 and 57. In this way, God punished Abimelech for the evil he had done against his father by murdering his 70 brothers. God also punished the men of Shechem for all of their evil. So the curse of Jotham, son of Gideon, was fulfilled. You, Shechem, will destroy Abimelech, and you, Abimelech, will destroy Shechem. You see what I was saying earlier? We think that God's not working a plan. We think that God's doing nothing. We think that God's absent. There's no justice that can possibly come out of this. God's justice will always be served. One more thing we need to gain from this story, though, and it's something we talked a little bit about last week, but I want to bring it back up, and I want us to lock into this. And We need to hear it again, guys. The problem in this story, and so much of the problem in our life, isn't out there. It's not those people. The problems that we have in life are in here. The rule of Abimelech is the first one in Judges where the actual oppression comes not from outside of Israel, but it comes from within Israel. Not only this, and what's really interesting to me, is not only is the oppressor within Israel, they actually choose their own oppressor this time. And guys, in much the same way, often our own suffering, often our own misery comes from the very things that we willingly choose in life. I mean, think about this story. There is no special divine judgment from God in the story. He just allows both Shechem and Abimelech to experience the rotten fruit of their poor choices. And in fact, it's important to remember that all of what has taken place in chapter 9 is just a direct result of decisions made and actions taken in Judges chapter 8, which serves as a very loud commentary. We need to hear this on how destructive and how far-reaching sin is. We may think in our lives, oh, this little thing right here, it won't affect anybody. I mean, maybe, like, maybe my kids, maybe my wife, but probably nobody else. Every decision that we make, every decision that we make that is not God's decision, every action that we take that is not God's action will eventually affect not just us and the people around us. It will affect widening circles around us. As someone has said, the harvest of the seeds of sin may not necessarily come in our generation, but in countless ones beyond us. Because all we have to do is sit here this morning and think to ourselves, yes, we are still experiencing the sinful actions of two people all the way back at the beginning of all things. In the Garden of Eden, what did Adam and Eve do? They thought, we know better, right? We have pride in ourselves, and so we're going to do what we want to do. And thousands of years later, what are we sitting here sitting in? Sin. Romans chapter 1, I'm just going to read a few verses from it, but this is a good New Testament connection to what we talked about this morning in Judges chapter 9. Romans chapter 1, starting at verse 18, says, God shows his anger from heaven against all sinful, wicked people, prideful people who suppress the truth by their 
wickedness. Verse 21, they knew God, but they wouldn't worship him as God or even give him thanks. And they began to think up foolish ideas of what God was like. And as a result, their minds became dark and confused. Claiming to be wise, they instead became utter fools. And instead of worshiping the glorious ever-living God, they worshiped idols made to look like mere people and birds and animals and reptiles. This is a very haunting verse. And so... God abandoned them to do whatever shameful things their hearts desired. As a result, they did vile and degrading things with each other's bodies. They traded the truth about God for a lie. So they worshipped and served the things God created instead of the Creator Himself, who is worthy of eternal praise. Amen. And that is why God abandoned them to their shameful desires. This is what is so interesting to me. And we would probably not even read this because we just have this big section of Judges chapter 9, this long story that is so complex and involved. And we come over to Judges chapter 10, verses 1 through 5, and it talks about two more of Israel's judges after Abimelech. And it says this in verses 1 through 5, After Abimelech died, Tola, son of Pua, son of Dodo, which is a lot of really bad names there, by the way, was the next person to rescue Israel. He was from the tribe of Issachar, but lived in the town of Shamir in the hill country of Ephraim. He judged Israel for 23 years. Sorry, turn my page there accidentally. When he died, he was buried, buried in Shamir. And then after Tola died, Jair from Gilead judged Israel for 22 years. His 30 sons rode around on 30 donkeys, and they owned 30 towns in the land of Gilead, which are still called the towns of Jair. And when Jair died, he was buried in Kaman. Do you notice what's not happening in those two judge cycles? We don't hear a single peep or a cry from the people of Israel. God, come and rescue us from our oppressors. They don't even bother to cry out to God anymore. And yet, this is the most amazing thing to me. God sends them deliverers to be the saviors that they aren't even asking for. God is still saving even when they are stubborn. And you know what the truth is today, guys? God is still saving us, even though we are stubborn. How many of you watch the TV show The Voice? Anybody into that show? All right, a few hands, all right? So the basic premise of The Voice is this. Somebody comes up on stage and they sing a song. All the judges that are out there have their, tur- their chairs turned away from the singer, the performer. They can't see their face. They can't see their weight. They can't see anything about them. All they hear is their voice. And when they hear a really great voice, they just start hitting that button and turn those chairs around and say, I want you. You know what the most amazing thing is about God? We, can't, we come up on the stage of life And before we can even get anything out of our mouths, you know what God does? Push that button and turns around and he says, I want you. We don't even have to do anything. We don't even have to sing. We don't even have to perform. There's nothing that we could do in our lives that God says, ooh, I want you. Before we even get it out of our mouths, God chooses us. He wants us. We'd ask ourselves, who in the world did these judges save Israel from? They saved them from really bad people that were out there, that were enemies. The judges saved Israel from their selves, from the enemy that was within. And guys, we need her. We need a leader in life. We need not just a leader, we need a savior in life who will rescue us from ourselves, who will choose us even before we do anything, who will choose us even in the midst of our stubbornness. 
And guys, let me just say it this way this morning. After reading a story about two men who were full of pride, it is a dangerous thing in life for us to think more highly of ourselves than we ought to. The most important thing that I want to come back to again in whatever we do in life is that God receives all the glory. Not just a part of it, not just half of it, not just three quarters of it, every single bit of the glory for what he has done. Let us be as watchful after the victory as before the battle, lest our sin and our pride creep in and take us down. Because, guys, and I just have to end with this, and I thought it was the most clever thing ever, pride comes before a wall. Not the fall, before a wall, as in Abimelech's case. Will you pray with me? Lord, thank you so much that you remind us every single day, and not just every single day, but multiple times in a day, Lord, that there is nothing that we can do in our lives that would ever impress you, would ever wow you, would ever cause you to say, oh, I've got to choose that person. Lord, you do it well before we do anything. You tell us in Scripture that even before we were born, when we were still in our mother's womb, you chose us. You called us. And so, Lord, I pray that we would be humbled by that. And in every part of our lives, we would not have pride, but we would only have respect. And most importantly, we would only show glory to you. It's in Jesus' name that we pray these things. Amen.